From the Chipstone Foundation, you're listening to Cellar Door, a podcast about the lives of objects. I'm Pierce Gelly. Welcome back. This episode is called Hair Work. In 1968, a writer named Pauline C. Smith published a short story called A Flower in Her Hair, which tells the story of an orphaned girl with bright red hair visiting her strange relatives in the mountains. Strangest of all is Aunt Abby. Abby lives alone in a cabin on a cliff. When the story begins, another aunt named Melinda takes our protagonist the girl, to visit Aunt Abby's cabin. Sidling into the room, Smith writes, the girl backed to a chair, feeling the slick wooden arms of it with her fingertips. As she sat on the edge of the broken cane seat, Aunt Abby stood before her. Marty's girl, such pretty red hair. Abby's talons hovered over the girl's shining head, suspended there. Such awful pretty red hair. Aunt Abby turned to Melinda. Did you ever see such pretty red hair? Melinda shook her head. Aunt Abby took another covetous look at the flaming hair. I'll fetch some grape juice. Aunt Abby scuttles from the room and returns with that grape juice. It turns out Abby's at work on an embroidery project. A wreath. Want to see the wreath? Wreath? The hair wreath. The girl agrees, with trepidation. Smith writes, The girl stared down and into a circlet of flowers painstakingly woven against the linen background. Twined into the floral hoop bloomed the white of cherry blossom, the gray of cactus spine, yellow daisies, brown iris, ashen lilies, goldenrod. Aunt Abby bent her head, her liver-colored claw pointing out a portion of the wreath. See them? They are black-eyed Susans. The centers come straight from your ma's hair. Pretty, ain't they? My mother's hair? This here's made of hair, didn't you know? Human hair? All of it? Just the family, though. I ain't never one to fool with any that ain't kin. All the family members worked into the hair wreath are dead. And we soon learn that the wreath's not quite finished. I ain't got that rose in yet. Once I get that in... The wreath'll be done. The grape juice Aunt Abby has offered the girl turns out to be drugged. The girl passes out. Aunt Abby shoves her into a gulch, killing her, and then clips a lock of the girl's red, red hair to finish the wreath. The story ends with Melinda observing Abby's handiwork. That's a mighty pretty rose. Mighty pretty. And ain't it red? This story is a horror story, but the author didn't make up that creepy hair wreath. For over a century, Americans wore jewelry made of family members' hair, which they either commissioned or made themselves. Hair work, as it was called, was wildly popular. Then, starting around World War I, it diminished, until by 1968, a writer like Smith could tell a story about hair that draws on a sense of disgust pretty much continuous with how we think today. But long ago, Americans read hair quite differently. As one advertisement from the 1850s put it, These gems of hair jewelry, interwoven with the pearl 
that gem which is interwoven with the pure image of our little eternity of time. They call into being thoughts and emotions of affections, remembrances of husband or wife, lover or child, parents and children. It could be the hair of a friend. It could be the hair of a loved one. It could be the hair of somebody who had died that you were remembering by wearing their hair. That's Helen Shoemaker. Helen wrote a book about hair work called Love Entwined. She says hair jewelry was immensely popular from the 1700s to the early 1900s because hair work presented a public means of displaying a private relationship. A good example would be a woman who had a piece of hair work jewelry made that incorporated the hair of her mother, which would be gray, her own hair, which was dark brown, and her, say, daughter's hair, which was a blonde. And you could weave this hair into a piece of jewelry that actually had a plaid that incorporated the gray, the brown, and the blonde color. But hair jewelry couldn't just be cut hair. Human hair jewelry and hair work wasn't useful if it was just a piece of hair. No matter how personal the hair work jewelry was, it was literally made out of the hair of, say, your child. It still was made into a form that was knowable to other people. Citizens. Would you preserve the hair of living or deceased relatives as mementos of your affection? Then call it once. That adds from the 1860s. The jewelry such a hair worker produced could take any shape. I saw so many at the Archive of Historic New England, where associate curator Laura Johnson showed me the best of their three or four hundred piece collection of hair jewelry. Most are black or brown. I've never seen red hair morning jewelry. It actually hadn't occurred to me until we were standing there talking about it that I hadn't seen it. She showed me a fat brown bracelet with a texture like mesh or honeycomb. It looks very contemporary to my eyes at least. And it's very textural. It looks soft to the touch, but it's not. It's actually quite firm. The hair itself can't tell us anything, of course. But when we have access to the hairwork's private hidden meanings, they're profound. Some of the most powerful examples are means of bridging great distances, like this piece. A woman moving abroad had this made from her own hair as a gift for her sister. She was giving her this as a way to remain in contact with her. She remained in literal contact. Exactly. <laughs> Laura also showed me a tiny ring made of woven hair. And then set with little gold findings to make it look like a belt. It's not, it's not a functional belt, is it? It is. It's you a can... tiny little functional belt <laughs> it is the size you... of a dime. <laughs> that you can belt around your finger. And this was made as one of a group of objects with the hair of a very popular minister from a small town in Massachusetts. So when he passed on, his hair was collected and worked as rings and then given out to his congregation. Wow. Yeah. So everybody got a, everybody got a little piece a little of piece the minister's hair. Of him <laughs> to wear. Looking at this strangely pleasing miniature belt, I found myself barely able to believe I was looking at a dead man's hair. It had been worked into something so totally different. Hair workers advertised working the hair of the dead, too. How pleasant to preserve in such beautiful form the relics of our loved ones. Laura told me about a family with five daughters who each made a set of earrings, a brooch, or a bracelet from their dead father's hair. And each one got a different piece of jewelry with their father's hair, and then later when their mother died, they added their mother's hair as well. One daughter wore these hair earrings for her engagement portrait so that her late father could, quite literally, be there. 
Laura says visitors often react viscerally when she reveals what these items are. They immediately back off, and their hands go behind their backs, and, and they kind of shrug a little bit, and they wince. Hair work seems difficult to understand, but in its way, it's simple. Giving part of yourself. Wearing someone else. As Helen Shoemaker observes in her book, there is no code to be broken. We just can't handle that simple fact. Here's Helen again. When we see it today, it can be creepy. It's hard to get around the fact that that was somebody's body. There's a shade of horror that comes from the orphaned parts of another's body. I think of the character Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby, a man given a special brutalism by the human teeth he wears as cufflinks. But I learned from Helen's book that even during Hairwork's day, people felt revulsion toward the hair of strangers. Without the story behind the hair, hair was totally creepy. For instance, the world of hair jewelry stood in contrast to what was even then a massive international market for real hair wigs. This is from a newspaper article about a wig factory. The place, in fact, was redolent of hair. There was hair in all the drawers, hair in cardboard boxes, hair hanging from the ceiling and clinging to the walls, hair upon the counters, upon the chairs, and in the very inkstand. There was even hair in the air itself, moving about as if it were in clouds, which when you agitated them disagreeably caressed you. Awful. Indeed, in the late 1800s, making one's own hair work became more and more popular due to a pervasive fear that if you sent your hair away to be worked, the shop would throw away your loved one's hair and send back some dead person's hair, cut from a wig, pre-woven. One editorial writer suggested that the professional's skill simply isn't worth the repugnant possibility. The liability of having the hair of some other person substituted for that of our own cherished friend, or that careless hands have idly drawn through their fingers the tresses which it appears almost sacrilegious to have even looked upon with a cold glance. Even then, hair could mean either intimacy or horror, depending on how you read it. We just don't know how to engage with the idea that hair might hold an intense intimacy. I think it's possible to bridge that gap, though. I came across a story that suggests, maybe, that some of Hairwork's meaning remains available. In 2011, in Boise, Idaho, Addie Higgins Hello? got a haircut. Yeah, my junior high dance was coming up, so I decided to basically just cut all my hair off and get it really short because I had never done that before. Pixie. But before Addie cut off her hair, her older sister Lily asked for it. Lily was away at Harvard in Massachusetts and wanted all the hair in one chunk if possible. Did that seem like a strange thing for her to ask? Lily does a lot of weird things pretty frequently. Good weird things, interesting weird things. So I also knew she had a reason for asking. Addie agreed and asked her hairdresser for a pixie cut in as few cuts as possible. Afterward, Addie wasn't totally sure about the haircut. I liked it for about two days, and then I wasn't able to style it. Oh, so. no. <laughs> but nevertheless, Lily did receive one severed ponytail of her sister's hair. She's actually a redhead. That's Addie's sister, Lily. That gave it kind of like a special flair because it clearly wasn't anybody else's hair. At the time, Lily was writing her undergraduate senior thesis on hair work, and she decided to try making it herself. She'd already worked with anonymous hair. Probably from, you know, the heads of multiple people. I have no idea. It's from some wig that I've cut up to use. So now she wanted to experiment. To kind of explore the difference, how the process uh, it seems different or maybe more weighty when you're working with hair that actually has a biography, that has a connection 
to someone that you not only know, but that you, you know, love. Your sister. Yeah, my sister, exactly. She washed her sister's hair and then ran the strands through her makeshift hair working apparatus. A cardboard disc with a hole in the center and notches around the edge. So how hair work works is that you have the strands all divided and tied off. Each section is numbered. One, two, three. And sits in a four. lettered notch. And each pattern, each different braid, prescribes a series of movements by number and letter. Exchange successively a three, five, six, two. And so you're crossing them over and creating this kind six, of complicated two. pattern that you can't visualize. So you have to kind of check to make sure you're doing it right based on the number. It's almost like running a simple computer program. By following this script, a braid emerges. Lily's sister's hair growing into wearable jewelry. At the time, across the country from home, Lily didn't hear from her sister all that often. She didn't even have a cell phone at that point. I'm in much more constant communication with my little sister now. We text all the time. That sort of disconnect would have probably been stronger than it is now, even though I'm still really far away. Yeah. I think at that point it would have been more pronounced. You're right about that. Like I was also, like my brother was an early teenager or one of my brothers when I left for college. Yeah. And you come back at vacations and they've like aged like mm -hmm. visibly. Definitely. You're like, holy yeah, crap, like definitely. you're as tall as I am now. Yeah. I have this vivid memory of returning home one summer to find my youngest brother, Clement, taller than me and sporting a haircut done by his friend, Mitch. Distinctive because it was rough in its execution, short sides, long on top, as was the style that year. A hipster's haircut with a sharpness of contrast that declared self-determination. Clement didn't have Facebook at the time, so the look totally surprised me. That haircut flew like a flag atop the time that had passed while I was gone. But you were you were working with her hair at yeah, the time. Yeah, and I think at the time it didn't feel it didn't feel as strange to me. But I really was thinking about it last night and thinking, you know, wow. At this point, she seems so grown up and so different from who she was, you know, at that sort of moment in time. And it turns out Addie felt the process had a similar weight, though she never saw the finished piece. Nope, I never saw it. She remembers feeling lucky to participate in Lily's project. I would say around the time that she asked for my hair, I think I kind of reached a point where we had a lot more to talk about, and I was old enough to, you know, be curious into the things she was studying at college. I was excited to be able to kind of participate, even in an odd way. So, yeah, it was a really weird hair-sharing connection. The great paradox of hair work is that, as intimate and intense as hair work can be, hair can't speak for itself, so it's very vulnerable to the obscuring drift of time. Many hair work items are now anonymous. Here's Laura again. Yeah, it's deeply frustrating for me because I want to be able to tell their personal stories. But even today, despite its muteness, despite our inability to read its meaning, this hair remains heavy with significance. Helen Shoemaker. We have a actual physical remnant of the past, but we need to be mature about it. Despite the terminal anonymity of much hair work, Helen told me. It's impossible for me to escape the idea and the fact that this was somebody's hair and someone cared for that individual and had chosen to preserve that individual in this form. And that is a true fact. <laughs> you know, that's a fact from the past. I say, I don't want it all to be, uh, you know, it's just artifice. 
the fact that there's this artificial structure around them doesn't mean that any of the actions were artificial. But it's almost as if we're getting a, a kind of a, 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 jar, a garbled signal from the past. The whole reason that we react to hair and we don't understand hair work anymore is that we still, I think we actually do still understand the sort of symbolic properties that hair has to be meaningful. We just don't want to engage with them that closely. We've just shifted our ways that we express these sentimental attachments. So people may balk at the idea of wearing like hair jewelry, but they don't hesitate, for example, to fill their Instagram um, account with images of themselves with their children. They don't um, balk at the idea of getting a tote bag made with a photograph of their grandchild on it. We just don't use the natural, like, <laughs> bodily pieces of them. When Helen said this, I thought, of course. I thought of the night I quit Facebook. It was New Year's Eve. I was in a bar with my family. I'd had a beer, and I thought, it's time. I pulled up Facebook on my phone. The deactivate command is buried in the settings menu. When I found it, I learned that Facebook's algorithms always make one last play to reel defectors back in. I found myself looking at a picture of my friend Peter. Facebook asked, Are you sure you want to do this? Peter will miss you. Yes, I thought. We'll keep in touch by email. I clicked OK. Then Facebook showed me a picture of me with my girlfriend at her college graduation. But she will miss you too. We'll be just fine. If you're totally sure. In the picture, a cardinal red mortarboard sat atop the many-colored true red of her hair. I clicked OK. Facebook showed me more pictures of me smiling beside my friends, pictures they'd posted or I'd posted. There was that time junior year of college that I found an onion lying around in Peter and Zach's apartment, and we'd all pass it around trading bites as if it were an apple. We looked happy. You'll never see this again. Can we get this over with? It's not as if I'm choosing to become an astronaut. Have it your way. We don't need you. You're the one that will disappear. Facebook dumped me back at the welcome screen. Sign up. Connect with friends and the world around you on Facebook. I may have embellished the terms of Facebook's argument, but Facebook's last-minute emotional appeal is real. It happens to every brave soul who quits Facebook. I still think about Facebook's attempt to hold my heart hostage, though it's been nearly two years since that night. I think about the teams of highly paid people who agreed upon and wrote that insistent refrain of, They'll miss you. They'll miss you. They'll miss you. There's a subtler argument embedded in that sentiment, and it's this. However you feel about these people, it's not legible outside our framework. Thinking about this now makes me want to quit Facebook all over again. I pocketed my phone. I looked around, and before the feeling faded, I tried to savor it. I was no longer linked to my ideal double on the internet. Just me, here, in a bar with my family, waiting for the new year, as inscrutable as unread hair.
This episode was written and produced by me, Pierce Kelly. Editorial help from Sarah Ann Carter, Natalie Wright, and Jonathan Brown. Thanks, guys. Huge thanks to all my voice actors. You heard my mother, Cordelia Gelly, and her parents, Julia and Dick Crampton. You also heard my girlfriend, Manon Lefebvre. And thanks as well to my brother, Clement Gelly, for letting me use his music in this episode. You can learn more about his music and read a transcript of the show at our website, cellardoor.audio. That website was designed by Wynne Patterson. This podcast is sponsored by the Chipstone Foundation, a Milwaukee-based organization devoted to the study of United States material culture and decorative arts. You can visit our galleries at the Milwaukee Art Museum, and you can learn more about us at chipstone.org.